0: Good morning the scripture I'll be reading this morning is Mark 9 verses 2 through 9 Um, and I'll be reading from the new revised standard version updated edition and I believe that's the same version that's in the pews. No, it's not. Sorry. (laughs) So this might be a little different from yours or the one there. (laughs) Um, This is Pastor Chris's version. (laughs) As you look for that, remember that in the chapter just preceding this was when Peter suddenly when Jesus asked who do you say I am and Peter said you are the Lord and some other things went on and then we come to Mark 9 verse 2. Six days later Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart from them by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling bright, such as no one on earth could brighten them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents one for you, one for Moses. And one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say for they were all terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son the beloved listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. As they came down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Aaron's right. I did choose the uh, new revised standard version. That's the the version of my preference, though I assure you it's not my version. We'd all be in big trouble if we were using my version of the Bible. Um, You know, there's a really good committee uh, that put this together. You know, we've been in the Gospel of Mark um, the last couple of weeks and um, reading the Gospel of Mark is kind of like getting on a speed train to your destination. It just moves so fast. It's terse. Um, The word immediately is used like 37 times, immediately Jesus is moving on to this town, immediately the disciples are now going here, immediately, and the whole thing is just this beeline of a train towards the cross, which is where Jesus is headed. There's no time to stop and uh, ponder the lilies, except when we get to our passage for today in Mark chapter 9. The reading slows down to uh, an elaborate pause the train has stopped at a station and it's time to get out, to stretch your legs, to look up at the sky, to listen to the birds for a moment. It's one of my favorite stories in the gospel, not because it's so easy to interpret, but because it's quite easy for me to imagine myself in the scene. In fact, I think that the story defies interpretation even though scores of interpreters continue to try. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of commentaries on this text. It's the otherworldly, otherworldly story of God and God's beloved, of this mystical encounter. But not only between God and God's beloved, also between those who are at the center of the story and then those who watch. And so those who are at the center of the story are Moses, Jesus, and Elijah, and those who watch are Peter, James, and John. And then, of course, there's all of us watching all of them. And as we watch them, we've been trained, most of us in Protestant Reformed circles, we've been trained to think that our job is to figure out what the story means, to decode it. Where did we get this idea, by the way, that the point of reading a sacred text is to solve an interpretive puzzle? To me, it seems to dominate the way that many of us read the Bible, give us a passage of Scripture, we put on our thinking caps, we do our best to look through the symbols, deciphering these things, reading between the lines, and then coming up with an encoded message that either Jesus or Mark or God wanted for us to find somewhere hidden in the passage, kind of like a game of hide and seek. It's almost as though the story, is kind of, the story itself is like a suitcase that carries the concealed meaning inside of it. If you can discern the content of the story, then you don't have to go rummaging around uh, the suitcase every time it comes up. Whenever you want, you can just take it out and neatly fold it and put it in your drawer and take it out next time you need it. In this way, the scripture has this, every passage has the same meaning, and in this way, Uh, the scripture is not living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's basically dead, and our job is to take it out and to bring it back to life through our application. So let me try to um, decode our passage for today. In the present case, the most common interpretation is that Moses stands for the law, Elijah stands for the prophets, And Jesus, of course, is the Messiah. And so by singling Jesus out as my son, the beloved, uh, Mark, God, is placing the gospel over the law and the prophets. Another way of looking at that is to say, well, Moses represents law and order, kind of like the red state. And Elijah represents The reformers, kind of like the blue states. And so you have thesis, the law. You have antithesis, the prophets. And then you have synthesis, which is Jesus above all, the law and the prophets, synthesizing them both together. So that's one way of looking at it. God places the gospel over the law and the prophets. And the voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved. Listen not to him, not to him only, but to him the synthesis. So that's one way. Now there are two secondary meanings for this text as well. One is about how sort of like supplemental uh, meanings. One is about how not to be like Peter, just blurting things out when you really should be quiet. And then the other one is about how these kinds of mountaintop experiences are meant to strengthen us for the climb back down the mountain into the valley of the shadow of death where The real work is waiting for us. So these might be exactly the meanings that Mark or God or Jesus intends for us to get out of the passage, but it's important to note that the passage actually doesn't say any of those things. Instead, what it does is is it just describes for us this bizarre mystical encounter that these guys have It's something so beyond ordinary human experience, so bizarre, so otherworldly, so like science fiction, it seems, that we can just sort of stand at a safe distance and read it. But what if the purpose is not to decode it, but to enter into it? What if we chose to do that right now? Maybe close your eyes for a moment. Imagine yourself in the scene. It begins after a day in the synagogue um, and uh, Mark says that it's six days have gone by. So that means that, well, okay, this is the seventh day. There's some kind of Sabbath, some kind of new creation. And it begins with your hike. You're going on this hike and you start, you start out on the hike. You're going up Mount Tabor and it's, you start out talking, uh, conversing about the day's events, about the people you encountered and met in the synagogue And as the hike continues, the ascent uh, starts to get more steep, the heart rates go up, the talking subsides. You continue the hike, and you hear the sound of breathing, comfortable in each other's presence without talking. You can hear the dry brush crunching under your feet. There aren't trails on Mount Tabor in the first century birds chirping in the oak trees. You can smell the oak of Mount Tabor and all of their oak trees. Jesus says to you, now now, you kind of make your way towards the top, and he says, now sit down and pray. Stay put and pray here. You're here to pray, so pray. Pray until you can't pray anymore. Pray until your eyeballs are about to pop out. Pray late into the night and into the morning. Pray until you can see the stars and the moon. And so you do. Hours pass. You nod off. You wake up. You nod off again. You wake up again. You give it all you got because after all, Jesus told you to do this and you're going to do it. The dark of night finally comes and there he is, someone you thought you knew really well, like a teacher, a mentor, a guide, all of a sudden more, seeming to be more than human. He's shining brightly, pulsing with light, spilling light everywhere. His face like a flame, his clothes dazzling white. And then if that weren't enough, two other people are all of a sudden there with him. Who are they? Oh, it's Moses and Elijah, our nation's great heroes. Dead men come back to life. God's own glory lighting up the night. Uh, Has it been five seconds or five hours? Now they're leaving. Now Peter's saying something. Tents. We need tents. Are we on Mount Sinai? We weren't on Mount Sinai before. Are we suddenly on Mount Sinai? Why is he asking for tents now there's a cloud that's coming in so fast. It's way more than weather. All I can smell is electricity and lightning. Peter is caught mid-sentence, and everything is suddenly covered in fog. Now you can't even see your hand in front of your face. You can't see the three people. You can't see your friends. It just smells like lightning. And then you hear a loud voice coming from this fog, and a rush of adrenaline floods your veins. Fear so fast and so primitive, you're shaking like a dog. What's the voice saying? Not, listen to me, but listen to him. And you're thinking, what? He's not saying anything. He's just shining brightly. Although I can't even see him anymore. He's, all I've got is this fog. Oh, there he is. He looks normal again like nothing happened. Moses and Elijah, they're gone, and just like that, it's over. Now what? If you have ever had um, an experience anywhere remotely as strange as this, then you will know why Peter, James, and John were relieved when Jesus told them not to tell anybody about it, you know, things like this seem to happen in the Bible, but if you tell about a mystical experience that you had with God at lunch, someone's probably gonna give you the name of a really good psychiatrist. If you have to say anything, you know, you should probably just stick with the commentaries. Just say the thing about Jesus or passing the law and the prophets, poke a little fun at Peter and bury the rest. Take yourself off the hook. Maybe it was God or maybe it was last night's Indian food. Maybe you've had an encounter with God that you feel shy talking about. A time or a season or a moment that you were so aware of God's presence and action in your life might not have been so visceral, but something that set your life on a different course and changed the way you thought about something, changed your value system, Gave you new work to do. You know, every year our youth hosts an incarnation narrative night during Advent. And Jared invites uh, several members of our congregation to share with our youth stories of genuine awareness of God's presence and action in their life. When God showed up and something happened and something changed and life wasn't the same anymore. It's a highlight every year. I've had two of what I would claim as mystical experiences that I hold very dearly in my memory. The first was when I was 16 years old and I was uh, in a a season of very intense, difficult, um, uh, life-threatening depression. And, uh, And I was alone awake all night long and crying out to God in that moment I became very much aware of the comfort and presence of the Holy Spirit who affirmed me, who said, I love you, and I affirm you. The next one happened when I was 24, and I was going through chemotherapy. I had a dream uh, one day, and in this dream, I became very much aware of Jesus' leadership in my life. Nobody can take those two stories away from me. They have have shaped me. The first one happened when I was supposed to be asleep, but I was awake in the middle of the night. And God gave me a vision for the rest of my life that I'm still following. The second one happened when I was supposed to be awake, but I was asleep asleep after chemotherapy, and that gave me, God gave me a vision for the rest of my ministry, which I'm still following today. A few weeks ago, Devin and I were in Kanab spending a few days in contemplation and uh, prayer and in hiking. It was really great. Uh, aside from the day that it snowed, it was 45 degrees during the day, which was nice hiking weather. And one day we, we went on a hike called the Bunting Trail, which is on the western edge of Kanab. And, uh, and it goes up to the mesa of one of the red rock Buttes Is that what you call it a red butte right there, and you get out you hike up about fifteen hundred feet, no big deal um, to the mesa and as we began this hike, we found ourselves as we were ascending, we found ourselves um, caught in a very, very thick fog or cloud i don 't know what the difference is if you 're in the middle of it between a fog and cloud um, and uh, and it was it was fascinating because as we got to the top of it, we were visited by a white rainbow. I had never seen a white rainbow. I didn't even know they existed. Devin spotted it and pointed it out to me, and so I took a picture and shared it and got all the credit. Um, (laughs) And I didn't know what this was, so after we were done, I went back and I looked it up, and I, and I learned that, um, you know, white rainbows are, are very rare sighting. They're, they're, they resemble normal rainbows, but with the color leached out. And they emerge from fog. Listen to this. They emerge from fog thin enough to be pierced by sunlight. And when I read that, I thought, that'll preach. Thin enough to be pierced by sunlight. Here's an image from the top of the mesa. Um, of just uh, there we, Devin. We're kind of looking out above the clouds. You know, Ta- Trappist um, uh, monk and mystic Thomas Merton, who spent much of his adult life in monastery writing devotional books, he said this. He said, life is simple. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent, and God is shining through all the time. This is not just a fable or a nice story, it's true. If we abandon ourselves to God and forget ourselves, we see it sometimes, and we see it maybe frequently. God shows himself everywhere in everything, in people and in things and in nature and in events. It becomes very obvious that God is everywhere and in everything, and we cannot be without God. The only thing is we don't see it. Merton goes on to tell his story saying this he said one afternoon in louisville on the corner of fourth and walnut in the center of the shopping district i was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that i loved all these people that they were mine and i was theirs that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers I have the immense joy of being human, a member of the race in which God Himself chose to become incarnate. This is who we really are. If only everybody would understand this, but it cannot be explained, there's no way of convincing people that they are walking around shining like the sun. In that moment, Merton was changed. He became aware, not just intellectually, but experientially of the interconnectedness of all things. His sense of being in here while the world was out there momentarily disappeared. The veil was lifted and he found himself in a place thin enough to be pierced by sunlight. And it changed him, transfigured him. I think we're allowed to have at least one direct encounter with God in our lives even as a Reformed Presbyterian Christian. You know just something that stops us in our tracks, throws us for a loop, calls our old certainties into question, sets our lives on a new course. You know some churches actually make you produce one of these experiences as proof of your conversion. Um, But whether you're part of a a congregation that that really enjoys and regularly practices signs and wonders or not, it seems to me that the general consensus of life in Christ is really about uh, trading your old certainties for new certainties. Once you emerge from the cloud and reach the mesa, you're supposed to be sure than ever what you believe You're supposed to know who's who and what's what and where you're going in your life and why. You're supposed to have answers to all the important questions. And when you read the Bible, you're supposed to know how to decode every little text. But what if the Bible is not a book to decode, but a cloud to enter into? What if the Bible is less a book of certainties than it is a book of encounters? What if the Bible is like a long parade of people running into God, into each other, and into life itself? I mean, just think about the things that people in the Bible run into. (laughs) Um, Not just terrifying clouds or pillars of fire, but crazy relatives, persistent infertility, armed enemies, deep depression, along with life-saving strangers, miraculous children, food in the wilderness, and all sorts of vulnerable love. We might label these encounters that we see as good or bad, fortunate or unfortunate, but they all have a way of stopping the people in their tracks and setting them in a new direction, breaking the people of the Bible open, rearranging what they thought they knew for sure, so that there's room for more divine movement in their life, making more room for God. Sometimes the movement involves traveling from one place to another. Sometimes it means having a new angle on what you thought was true and why. Sometimes it involves the invisible or impossible movement of one heart toward another. Certainties are casualties in the spiritual life, especially those certainties that involve clinging to static notions of who's who and what's what and where you're going in your life and why. Those things can shift pretty dramatically in the cloud of unknowing because faith has more to do with paying attention to what is right in front of you than trying to determine the course of where you will be or why or what will happen or even being certain about what it all means. It's really about the encounter. There's no way to be sure, but I think Peter sensed this. I think uh, when Jesus lit up right in front of him, Peter knew what he was seeing and experiencing. The Bible calls it God's glory, the shining cloud that is the sure sign of God's real presence. Why did Peter know that? Well, because in the book of Exodus, Moses climbed Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the law, and the whole mountain was socked in divine cloud for six whole days. In 1 Kings, when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, a dense cloud fell upon the, this huge place so that the priests couldn't even see what they were doing. When Ezekiel had his vision of four living creatures, he saw them in the middle of a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. That's what God's glory looks like, apparently. Before the cloud rolled in, Peter knew what he was seeing. What he did not see was a tent of meeting. And so naturally, a dwelling place like Moses had with, met with God during the wilderness years. And so naturally, Peter offered to set one up. One for you, Jesus. One for Moses. One for Elijah. Lord, if you wish, we'll make these for you. Peter might not have known what he was saying but I think he knew what he was seeing and what he was experiencing. His instincts were good. He knew that God was right there. And tent or no tent, he was experiencing, he was standing as close as he is ever going to get to the only kind of meeting that ever really matters. You know that today is, is the pivot between the season of Epiphany and the season of Lent and so it's the time when we kind of say goodbye to the bright lights of Epiphany and we enter into the gloomy season of, of Lent. Um, as gloomy as this season is it's good news because most of us are pretty busy um, and distracted by our gadgets busy with work, addicted to our pleasures, and even resistant to our, our, the soul, our own depth, uh, that, that what we need is to enter into a season of wilderness spirituality and do some work. No one can make you go, but if you've been looking for some excuse to head to your mountaintop and pray, this is it. If you've been thinking about trading in your old certainties, to make more room for divine movement in your life, this is your chance. It's your opportunity to enter the cloud of unknowing and listen to whatever it is that God has to say to you. And if you're like a guide, there is a book called The Cloud of Unknowing, conveniently. It was written in the 14th century. It's an anonymous um, book written in Middle English, and it's a book on contemplative prayer. A spiritual guide and the underlying message is this the way to know God is to abandon your analysis of God and God's attributes and activities to have the courage to surrender your mind and your ego to the realm of unknowing because otherwise you're just bringing in your own preconceived ideas At that point, in the cloud of unknowing, the book portrays you can finally begin to glimpse the true nature of God. Today, you've heard a story that you can take with you when you go. It tells you that no one has to go to the mountaintop alone. It tells you that sometimes things get really scary before they get holy. Above all, it tells you that someone is standing right in the middle of the cloud, right in the center of it with you, (laughs) shining so brightly that you may never be able to wrap your mind around him, to solve him as a problem, but who's worth listening to all the same because he is God's beloved and you are his. Whatever comes next, you're ready for it. You're ready for it. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank You for showing Yourself to us. You revealed Yourself, first of all, in the creation, in Your first revelation. And You've revealed Yourself to us in so many ways since, especially in such a profound way in Jesus. We trust Him as the One who is incarnate as God. We thank you that Peter and James and John had this encounter with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And we pray that you will give us awareness of your presence with us, your glory whenever it shines through. May the fog of our lives be thin enough to be pierced by your light. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.